Let's open the scripture to Matthew 19 this evening. Matthew 19. We're going to work through the context to get to um, the end of a certain section here where um, we're going to find it very, very challenging, I'm sure. But I want to lead us to that point, and it necessitates that we go through some controversial um, content and also some rather deep content. So stay with me. That's why I had you stand up and sit down, because we're going to go a little deep. In Matthew 19... It says that some of the Pharisees, verse 3, came to Jesus, to him, to test him. They did that all the time, trying to find something with him that would be a flaw. The most dangerous people to the church are Pharisees, and they're still here today. They were the chief antagonists against the ministry of Jesus, and they watched him. I've encouraged our church for 34 years to be a church that watches out for one another, doesn't watch one another. That's an important difference, isn't it? Let's not watch one another, let's watch out for one another. Be a church of accountability without legalism, right? But they were looking for an opportunity to trip him up, so they tried to engage him in a current debate. Is it lawful? for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. There were two schools of thought, and one was conservative and one was more liberal in thought, and they were trying to force him to take sides. So he asked them a question that is rather an indictment to them, haven't you read? Now he's asking a question with regard to their question, My father said when he was put on the bench as a police officer, he loved frustrating attorneys by responding to a question with a question. He said, I get all flustered, you know. You're supposed to be answering. My question's not asking me questions, right? Their question is not about some superficial manner or something that has no life impact to it. It's not something just to theorize about. Divorce is serious. It is everywhere, too, everywhere, and it's painful, painful to those who go through it and painful to those who love those who go through it. I have a lot of friends who never intended to be there, never on their, never had a moment's thought that they would end up in a position being divorced and worked hard not to be, but they are. That's where they're at. This is no light issue that's being addressed here. When you're addressing issues that are so life-affecting, where do you go? Haven't you read? Ah, do you do that? You read, by the way? We go to a written source, don't we? Haven't you read? Jesus endorses a written word, that is authoritative, that speaks to very deep and personal issues in a way that ought to hold sway and authority in our lives. Haven't you read? And of course, when the enemy attacked him in chapter 4, 
He responded, it is written, it is written, it is written. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. You want to, there's something so incredibly amazing about that and so significant about that because he's quoting from Genesis 2 and there's no indication at all in Genesis that God is speaking. None. When he says, and said, for this cause or this reason a man shall leave, it's just re- treated as recorded history in Genesis. It's not treated as a word from God. It's not treated as, it's not presented as God speaking. But Jesus is treating the recorded word of history as the living word of God. It's as God speaking, even though there's nothing in Genesis that indicates God was speaking at that time. And that's what we do. We go to a, we go to a written source and we respect it as not just merely something written in time, but something written from God himself, and we take it as that word. Written, obviously, in a context, in a setting, very different from us, different language from us. And I, I love to take on those who say, how can you possibly follow an ancient book written a long time ago by a bunch of men? I love to say, where did you get that information from? Because I know one thing, you didn't get it from this. Was it written by men? Yes, but that's not the whole story. It was written by men moved, moved by God. You're not giving me a whole presentation, so you, you've got kind of a, your own version of how it comes about and so forth. But, you know, beside that point, let's ask this question, what do you follow? you want to give me the impression that you just work out of an empty kind of slate and you just have no source of authority yourself? I remember speaking in a class at the university, Millersville University. It was a health class. They asked me to speak on life after death. I'll do half and a Catholic priest will do half. I thought that would be interesting. Um, I said, okay, I take those opportunities. I was talking about mentioning the word sin, that forbidden word, and a student said, I I just don't believe there is such a thing as sin. I said, really? How about if I come over and slap you in the face as hard as I can? Would that be right or wrong? Name it. What does it belong in the category of right or wrong? The moment moment a person decides that they're going to have ought and ought not, should and shouldn't, uh, you know, the moment they put laws into place and make those laws accountable and punishable, they're admitting a source. They're going somewhere for a source. What is the source of your authority? And it says who? It says who? And I think that those who poke it, those who follow the Scripture, need to also... I was going to say lay their cards down on the table. That's probably not a good church illustration, right? But, but they, they, need to, they need to show their hand, Okay. And we ought to make them show their hand. Jesus said, you know, before we have a conversation about divorce, can we kind of go back and set it up how it was in the beginning in marriage, what God's intention was for marriage? And it's an indictment to the um, caretakers of the law, the Pharisees, that he's saying, you haven't read the basics, fellas. Let's go back to how it 
you know, basic, the basics from the beginning. The manner of first mention, the manner of first teaching. Haven't you read that God said, a man shall leave his father? And then Jesus adds to that in verse 6, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let men not separate. Now, I've tossed and turned over that phrase a little bit because I've done a lot of weddings, and I've asked the question, at what point does God join them together? Is it when I say, and now by the authority conferred upon me by the church of Jesus Christ and the laws of this state, I now pronounce you, husband and wife, no longer two, but now one, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is it at that moment that what God has joined together, that scares me a little because that's a lot of responsibility. You know, I tell couples that want me to marry them that um, we always have a first meeting. Because if this is a train wreck, I'm not the engine leading it, right? So we're going to do a little exploration first and find out what's really going on here, what's happening in your lives. And it's not an outpatient procedure, it's the OR. So so Jesus gives this a definitive, authoritative word from God regarding the solemn nature and enduring applicability of marriage and the relationship why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? You know, one of the things that I've learned to watch very carefully, and ever since I wrote my book on the 18-year factor, is I watch words very carefully when people speak them. Listen, attentive, careful listening is so important. The Proverbs say that he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly to him, right? Be a good listener. And the words people choose to use often give away far more than uh, they realize. Oh, just as an example, I was talking to a gal who she and her fiancé want to get married, and I always ask, were you ever in a serious relationship before? Yes. Had a couple boyfriends. They both cheated on me. I said, really? I looked at at her fiancé, and I said, have you ever felt like you had to pay for that a little bit? And he goes, um, well, yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. So she says, um, well, I guess what happened is after that happened to me, I just decided that I'm going to be strong and I'm going to not need a man. I says, is that what you call that? Strong? That's what that is, strong. Uh... Well, ha, ha. You see, listen, that's not strength. That's weakness. That's being controlled by what happened in the past and throwing out an overgeneralization into the future. All men cheat because it happened to me. All people do this. All fathers, all, all. We overgeneralize about the future because of a circumstance we had in the past in a self-protective way to make sure we don't get hurt again. Like a gal came to me and said, after a sermon one Sunday, and said, I haven't been in church. She's 18 years old. She said, I haven't been in church since I was 14 years old. I gave it up because I was going to a legalistic church where they just want to control your lives. I said, really? So they're still in control? She said, what? I mean, they're still in control, right? 
because they're the reason you gave up church. You're done with church because of them. They still control how you view church. She said, oh my goodness. I never thought about it that way. You know, you think you're you're not reacting, you're not letting the past control the present, and you know, and, and you listen carefully to words. Why did Moses what what's the word he uses? Why did Moses command? Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not that way from the beginning. He's not going to let go of the beginning. He's not going to let go of the way God intended it to be. Oh, yes, he will, though. He will let go of that. Moses made a concession because of the hardness of your hearts. It's not the way it was in the beginning. It's not the way God wanted it to be. But he made a concession because of the hardness of the human heart and the insensitivity and the possible uh, sad effects that it would have had on women at the time. I'm not going into all the detail of Deuteronomy 24, but it was a gracious concession to protect vulnerable people. Jesus is about to make a concession also. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the basis of marital infidelity, that's a concession. That's not the way it was from the beginning. Folks, listen carefully. This whole thing we've got going here on this planet is all under divine concession. I wonder how many concessions he has to make for me because of my heart. When God was grieved to his heart that he made the world in the first place, he said, somebody get my hose. I'm going to clean this place up. And he washed it up, and he cleaned it up, And Noah and his family, the eight people who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, came off that ark. And God made this statement, this concessionary statement, and everything is affected by it. He said, I'm never going to destroy the world again as I have just done. Fire is the next method, not water. As I have just done, even though I know that the hearts of the sons of men is fully intent on evil, that all their thoughts are evil from childbirth. God says, I know what I'm working with. It's not good. Even though I know what I'm working with, I'm not going to do that again. That's a concession. Do not look at this world and see the evil and the violence and the senseless stuff around you and lift your head up to heaven and cry out to God saying, why do you let this stuff happen in this world? Look up to heaven and say, God, we're sorry for what we have done with the good world you gave us. We ought to be saying, you gave us a wonderful place to be and we have made such a horrible mess out of it. We have allowed... Look up and say, God, we're sorry. And we're thankful for your patience because the day is going to come when it's over. The father's going to look to the son and say, go get your bride and bring her home. It's over. Right? I marvel at the patience of God. And I don't marvel at the patience of God because of all those bad people out there. I marvel it for me. His patience for me. 
The reality is, is that there is a lot that happens by concession. You're disturbed by some of the elements in the Old Testament that come from ancient Near Eastern culture because they involve things that seem like they have violence and bizarre kinds of customs and traditions. How can that be the God that I see in the New Testament and all that stuff? Remember, remember what he's working with. Remember what he's working with, right? He's making concessions that are far from the way it was at the beginning, the way it was meant to be at the beginning. Jesus, too, will make a concession, as I said. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. And then in verse 9, he uses that repeated phrase that became so common for his way of approaching teaching, but no teacher in Israel would dare begin his teaching with the words, I tell you, never. Moses says, the scripture says, the rabbi says, the elders say, never, I tell you. That's why they saw him as someone who teaches as one who has what? Authority. Like, who does this man make himself out to be? Because I tell you is synonymous with the Old Testament phrase, thus says the Lord. Who does he think he is? I tell you. My words will judge people on the last day, he says. A new commandment I give to you? Who are you? Who is this man? Don't patronize Jesus by saying he was a good prophet, a good teacher. That's so silly and patronizing. He is either the Lord who speaks this way, or he's a crazy man, a liar, a, a traitor, a, a phony. There is no other choice that's even rational. You've got to take one or the other. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay, so look, this is controversial, but I'm going to give you my view. I'm not so sure if it's Alden Union's view, and I'm not here to try to shake anything down or start anything up, but I'll say this, that I believe that Jesus is making an allowance for divorce and remarriage in this particular verse and it's based on marital unfaithfulness or adultery. Now, in Jewish law, adultery would have, according to the law, would result in what? That's right, it's a capital offense. How often they carried that out, I don't know. But there's one thing that every single view on divorce and remarriage agrees with, and that's this, that if your mate dies, you're free to remarry. Perhaps Jesus is teaching it in a way that, though they're under Roman law, not under theocratic rule, maybe he's teaching it in a way that is in keeping with the, 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 the intention of the law of the Old Testament, and that is that, you know, the person severed the marriage relationship, they're dead. But Jesus is not prescribing this. He is not commanding this. He is permitting it. And make no mistake about it, that this is not something that we go to and say, see, right there, I'm good, I'm divorcing. Don't do that because, well, one good reason is because God didn't do it to you. You say, well, I've never committed adultery. Oh, really? Spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness, 
Sometimes our faithfulness is like the morning dew. The sun beams on it and it's gone. Before you're so quick to rush to divorce, remember that forgiveness and reconciliation are the highest, highest ethical standards for us as believers because we are a forgiven and reconciled people at great cost. Even though we have played the harlot, even though we have been spiritual daughters, he tells Hosea, go back and buy her. Your wife, she's being sold as a prostitute. I want you to go buy her and love her. Listen carefully. The text says, love her with the love of the Lord. Because that's the only love that would enable you to love her, is the love of the Lord. This is not a verse that's saying, you know, I had a woman one time say to me because she caught her husband using pornography, well, I, I can divorce him and you can't tell me I can't. First of all, I don't like people coming to my office and telling me what I can't tell them. I'm not really big on that, okay? But I didn't react. I said, listen, right now, things are really raw. They really hurt. This is probably not a good time to be talking about big decisions, don't you think? She said, yeah, I guess it isn't. Yeah, I don't think it is. I wanted to say, yes, I can tell you. <laughs> but it was not the time to say that, right? Um, we are a forgiven people and reconciled. So, But if a person uh, truly is uh, has a mate who's been unfaithful in that way, um, the Lord does make an allowance here. He does. I've helped couples who are working through that kind of scenario where one has been unfaithful. I'd like to tell you that my success rate has been above 50%. It's tough. It's really difficult. It's like somebody has a mortgage that will never be burned, a trump card that comes out of the pocket every time there's an argument. It's just so tough. It's so tough. It will take the love of the Lord to, to restore. And I have seen it happen, and it's beautiful. I have. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. By the way, when Jesus gave the one exception, he, he allowed himself to land on one side of the debate. He didn't avoid the question altogether. He landed on the conservative, the really conservative side of the debate. And the disciples are horrified, like, what? You mean my only way out is this? Well, if that's the way it is, it's better not to marry. If that's the only way out. You see, there are all kinds of ways out being provided and, and, and allowed based on the misinterpretation and abuse of the Old Testament. And so they said, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. That kind of implies that singleness is a gift, doesn't it, right? You know, single people have two decisions. The first one is, should I marry? And if that's answered in the affirmative, then the next one is, whom should I marry? Right? I've taught a class for 26 years every fall semester, uh, six to seven Sunday evenings, on how to make one of your most important decisions, one of your best decisions, the decision of marriage. And we've had 
So many singles go through that class in 26 years. And we advertise it on the university campus and we get kids out and I tell them, you know, we're going to talk about not the things that might affect marriage, but the things that will affect marriage. And I try very hard to demystify this manner of who you marry so that we can become become a people who, who believe that God leads us from the neck up as well as the neck down. I felt it with my heart. Well, God really told me. I always say, well, you got it from the top. You don't need to have any consultation with me. There's nowhere higher to go than that. Because why would you ask me for advice? You got it from God. You know, one gal's uh, struggling whether or not she should be back with her boyfriend. She believes she should. So she spends an hour out at Chickie's Rock and with her Bible and her and induces herself into some state that she believes that God told her that they'll be back together. And she came and told me, and I know that he said he has no intention to get back together, and they're not together today. So I don't know what happened out there, but we better sort that thing out, what happened out there that God told you. And then I scare the life out of them by saying that the decision of whom you marry is your decision, not God's. Uh Uh-oh, that sounds really non-Christian. There's only one explicit command of the Bible concerning whom you marry. It's in 1 Corinthians 7.39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if he dies, she's free to marry whomever she desires, only he must belong to the Lord. Well, there's five guys who belong to the Lord, and they're single, and they're in the church. And God, which one have you chosen for me before the foundations of the world to be my second husband? God says, which one do you want? Oh, no, you're not going to do that to me, are you? You're not going to make me responsible to make that decision, are you? Yes. She's free to marry whomever she desires, only he must belong to the Lord. And by the way, we need to unpack what belong to the Lord means. It doesn't mean he's willing to go to church. He's not against praying together. He'll read the Bible with me. (laughs) Stop. Just stop. It's painful to listen to it. Right? It's your decision. Make a good one because you're responsible for it. Right? She's free to marry whomever she desires, only he must belong to the Lord. Dear God, make her wear a blue sweater today and then I'll know she's the one for me. <laughs> oh my, oh Lord have mercy on us. Oh my goodness. I was speaking at Lancaster Bible College. I did a couple of chapels on this subject down over there. And um, one kid came up to me afterwards, and his eyes were wide open. And he said, I said, can I help you? He said, that, that sweater thing? Yeah, I did that. <laughs> I wanted to say, and you're admitting it to me? <laughs> wow. Blue? It was actually blue. I actually. Did she wear a blue sweater? Yeah. Look, I say in my class, we're not gonna. You're gonna forget what color that sweater was if she doesn't know how to handle money, or if she's. You know, there are so many issues that come up in marriage, and you'll forget the color of that sweater so quickly. Let's make a good decision. Let your head lead your heart. Don't give your heart to anyone until your head has processed the kind of data that says you're making a really wise decision. Then give your heart, because if you give your heart to a bad relationship, and I try to talk your head out of it, good luck with that. 
Well, what kind of data should the head process before we make a decision? Welcome to my class, I tell them. (laughs) And then here comes the conclusion that we need to wind into right here. This is powerful. Verse 12, "For for some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage or chosen to live this way because of the kingdom of heaven. I, that jumped off the page at me about two or three years ago, and I thought, how did I miss this? A eunuch was considered a half-man. He was not able to fulfill the expected obligations of a Jewish young man, and that was to marry and have children. That was expected. It was a responsibility. He was not capable of doing that. Well, maybe not all of the eunuchs. A eunuch was not permitted into the temple to worship. He was not permitted on those sacred grounds. A eunuch could not participate in government. He was considered someone who probably wouldn't have the courage to do it. And some of them, listen carefully, some of them were born that way. We call that a birth defect. A birth defect. When a couple has a baby, they want to know right away, everything okay? What do you mean? Like five fingers, you know, hands, toes, everything good? We're very nervous about the possibility of it not being perfect. But let us be very careful. Remember what it was that God said to Moses when he said, I'm not a very eloquent man. You probably ought to get somebody else to go out and speak for you and to represent you. What did God say to him? God said, who gave man his mouth? Who made him deaf or dumb? Who gave gave him sight or made him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? However, I want to distance God from birth defects and see it not as part of his original creation, which it wasn't, not as part of his original intention, which it was not. I better be careful not to distance it too far from God. Oh, it's a shame that your child is born blind. Be careful about what you say. What do you mean a shame? We wanted to use medical procedures and bioethics that are questionable in order to permit ourselves to weed out the ones who have defects before they're ever born. But I'll tell you one thing. We need them because they teach us so many things, don't they? They teach us so much. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? The disciples ask. Jesus said, neither, but that the work of God might be put on display. And a work of God is put on display by people who have handicaps and disabilities and, quote, defects. So many times a work of God is on display. Some are born that way. Born what? Incapable of sexual activity. The number one identity marker for people today is sexual identity. Sexuality. What is your sexuality? And we are so messed up and confused about who a he is and a she is. And, a, and we are, we, we're so, it's just scary it's scary 
that a little third grader could be confused about gender identity and we're responsible, if they declare, we're responsible to move everything around them and not think to help them. And in fact, if you try to help them, you're going to get in trouble. True? What in the world is wrong with us? That we do not assist our children when they're going through confusion and, and doubt and everything, that we don't come alongside of them for fear that we are the ones who would be punished. What kind of people are we? But sexual identity is so important. It's such a big thing that the thought that someone would be born this way just rattles us. Some are made that way by men. That's human violence. Kings who castrated certain men to make sure that they, when they watched the king's harem, there was no temptation involved and no betrayal. This happened. Isn't it a horrible thing when people, people's lives are radically changed by acts of human violence? Some are made that way by men. Uh-oh, the third category. And some choose to live this way for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What that means is some embrace the shame that will be placed upon you if you live like a eunuch. They embrace the social separation that will come with that. They sacrifice certain things that... It doesn't say they can't get married. It doesn't say they cannot produce children. It does not say that. It doesn't say they're born that way or they're made that way. It says they choose to live this way. Well, are you expecting them to suppress their sexual desires? Who would do that? They need to be free to express all their sexuality. But they choose to take something that is one of the most powerful realities of human existence, and that's sexual desire and sexual expression, and they choose to demote it and give it a place that doesn't have a kind of priority over their lives because they have decided that seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is more important than my opportunity to express myself sexually. There are people who are born with desires that are contrary to what we see as the established plan of God. Don't ever treat someone who struggles with same-sex attraction as if it could not be a biological reality that they're dealing with. Please don't do that. Well, God would never let somebody be born that way. Excuse me. The whole thing's happening under concession. Well, I mean, if they're born that way, doesn't that mean that they should be free to live that way? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And I want to say to you, that my generation owes an apology to the younger generation because we've not cast a vision for the kingdom that is so passionate and real and desirable that you would 
take something like even your sexuality and say, I'm not living for that because there's things that are higher and things that are nobler. These have allured my sights. I have learned what it means to set my affection on things above and not on things on this earth. I'm not a person who looks only at what is seen. I'm a person who looks at what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. I want to live for the glory of God. I want to live passionate for the renown of his name. I want to do that, but nobody's really given me an example that inspires me to demote something as powerful as my sexuality and not live for that and not live for the baser cravings of my life. No one's cast a vision for the kingdom that would grip my heart, capture me, and fill my passions so powerfully that I would embrace the shame. I would embrace the sacrifice. I would embrace all the suffering that comes with it, and I would suppress a desire that I have in my life because it's for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Maybe we've been too busy polishing our cars and our boats and planning our vacations and living like this is heaven. Stock and treasure on earth instead of heaven and the young people have not received from us a vision for the kingdom that would inspire them and something distinctive about us that they say, there's a man who lives for the kingdom of heaven. And if you're a young person here, my generation owes you an apology. We've been too preoccupied squabbling over things that don't matter in our churches, lacking the power and the vision this stuff here, it's going to be gone. I'm not saying you shouldn't be a good steward of it and take care of it, but certainly seek first, and it's not in a sequential list of things. First does not mean that. It means as the magnificent obsession of your life so that everything I'm doing in my life, wherever I work, you're going to trace a line back that has connections to, Father, let your name be honored. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're going to be able to trace a line back to what I'm doing, and you'll be able to see that I am consumed with a magnificent obsession, the renown of his name the advancement of his rule, the doing of his will on earth as it is in heaven. And so my light affliction, which is just for a moment, works an eternal weight of glory in me because I'm focused on not things which are seen, but things which are unseen. Things that are higher, we sing that hymn. Things that are nobler, these have a Lord my sight. It's never too late to start, is it? Things done while in the body, you're still there in the body? Yeah, get a pulse, right? You're still in the body, right? Okay, get started. Get started. Walk with people who are with you, ahead of you, and behind you. Find somebody behind you. Walk with them. Walk with them. But stay connected to people who are ahead of you. You need them too. Find someone. God said through the prophet Isaiah, I'm going to give the eunuchs a name. 
that is better than sons and daughters that is written on the wall. And an Ethiopian eunuch who wanted to understand the Bible but wasn't sure he was welcomed at a place where it was taught. God sent Philip and by the Spirit of God to him to explain the Scripture to him. And tradition has it that he is the first missionary to Africa. The Ethiopian eunuch. A eunuch. When Jesus brought up eunuchs, they went, huh. How could you dignify a eunuch and lift him? Some choose to live this way for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus always gave dignity where they didn't think it belonged. Praise his name and let's seek his kingdom. Father, inspire our hearts and our lives. Teach us to simplify and prioritize and do it around things that are not duties but passions. For the glory of your name and the advancement of your kingdom, we plead with you. Capture the hearts of our young people so that their affections are set on things above, not on things on this earth. Challenge us to inspire them by choosing to live this way for the sake of the kingdom.